Welcome back to the Lighthouse Project podcast, a Children of Scientology production, and a completely collaborative effort to chat about all the issues affecting the youngest members of Scientology who didn't choose it for themselves. Our goal is to help create awareness around what Scientology feels like, specifically to a child. What becomes of them, their sense of self, family bonds, mental health, as only someone who experienced being raised in it can, and some familiar topics in a different way dig into how we can heal and to share tools. We do have a content warning. In this podcast, we are going to share some stories and information, some details of which may be upsetting or disturbing for listeners, specifically content involving sexual assault, rape, child sexual abuse, and psychological and physical abuse of children. We encourage anyone who's been affected by these types of experiences who wish to talk to someone about it to reach out to a trauma-informed organization in their area. In our last episode, we discussed Dr. Barbara Ziv's testimony, a forensic psychiatrist and an expert in sex offenders and sexual assault survivors. This is part two. So Dr. Ziv has asked, what brings them back? You know, what brings a victim back to continue on in that relationship or to have that continued contact. And she says lots of things, things like not wanting to believe it's true, wanting to believe that they are cared about. There are lots of things that draw them back, including the fact that no one is like that all the time. So the person who does that to you at night, that might be the person you had a great dinner with. No one is an evil human being 24 hours a day. So women go back looking for the man who is better to them. Maybe he was drinking. Maybe he had a bad day. But that's not the man that I fell in love with. Well, she also can says, I say in Scientology, that would just be his case. That would just be his reactive mind. That would just be an aberration that he could handle. So they really do separate the behavior apart from the person even further. That is so true, Christy. That is so very true. And Dr. Ziv talks about the rate that these types of incidents are reported. She says it's among the least reported crime. The least reported crime. Only about 15% of the time. Is that wild? 15% of these instances are reported to law enforcement. She says that most women don't report sexual assault. And when it is reported, it is prosecuted even less. Just you reading that statement makes me feel so much anger. Right. And stranger assault is more readily reported than with someone known. And I think that goes to, you know, when it's someone known, we understand it's so much more complex. And, you know, there's such a burden on the victim to explain what happened. Not only to explain that to themselves and understand that, but to also try and explain that to somebody else. How many times did you say no? Did you say no loud enough? What were you wearing? Had you given him other signals? But I also think back to what you just said. Of those that report, how many are believed? Like on top of that small, tiny percentage that report is an interesting equation. Just how infuriating is it, though? Right. And belief isn't the only thing that factors in. It's also evidence. So when you're talking in terms of whether law enforcement can prosecute the case, you know, it happened. There's nothing that can change the fact that it happened. But 
when it comes to prosecution of a case, it's not about whether or not it happened. It's about how much evidence do we have to show that it did happen? Or, you know, obviously it would be disregarded if there was enough evidence to show that it didn't happen, right? But I'm talking about in the case that, you know, it it clearly did happen, but is that what evidence do we have? And it's really not up to, that's the unfortunate thing. And this is where it gets really, really tricky for a victim who is trying to address something in a criminal matter. We hold on to this idea that whether or not it is criminally pursued or whether or not there is an outcome or the outcome of a guilty verdict for the perpetrator, that that is an acknowledgement that this happened. And we really need to come away from that because that is really too high of a standard. It does not mean that this did not happen to you if you don't get the outcome in a criminal case that you felt that was more accurate. And we need to build up some other systems where there are other ways to validate what happened to us, where there are other ways for us to navigate forwards from that. And one thing that we'll talk about in future is something that's been really helpful for me is advocacy. So doing advocacy, you know, I've long awaited a criminal outcome. It's still in progress. It's still an active case, but it's been so many years now. I really need something for me in the meantime. And I'm looking at other ways to, I guess, validate my experience that feels meaningful for me. And that's really important. And it's going to be up to an individual how, you know, what those things are for themselves and and whether or not they do want to pursue anything further to that. But I just really want to say that there are things that we believe should occur and they don't always occur. So whether or not it's prosecuted does not indicate the validity of your case. It just goes to what evidence is available. And unfortunately as well, that burden is largely on the victim to produce that evidence. So that's a whole another thing as well. Those are all great points. Just curious if there's a statistic on false reporting, like what, what have they found? There is a statistic on it and it's very low and I would have to look that up. I bet it is low. If only 15% report, how low would false reporting have to be, you know? But back to the other thing that you were saying about advocacy, you have been just persistent and faithful to yourself in pursuing justice. And it's so admirable and heartbreaking and admirable. So I have mixed feelings about it. But the advocacy piece makes so much sense to me. Like any of those of us that have circled back that know that we're probably not going to get justice for a thing, but we can help others. We can help them get justice. We can help prevent it happening to the next person. So there's such an incredible value to advocacy. And, you know, we didn't have someone there to advocate for us, to defend, protect us, to help us quickly get to justice. And so if we can change, you know, break that cycle, change that curve, it it means a lot. And I think that we will get a lot out of it and certainly others will benefit. So I really can relate to that. I completely agree. Built the same way. So she says there that only 15% are reported. And then, you know, I, as I understand it and as I have experienced, there's a whole process following on from when you report it 
And then there's the gathering of evidence, which is largely the burden of the victim. And from there, especially when you're talking about historical case, you know, you don't have immediate physical evidence. And we also know that to be true in drug rapes because it takes the victim a long time to understand. In a lot of cases, there's amnesia involved as well. So it can take a long time for them to understand what happened. And the drugs can be out of the system in a very short period of time. So we have consultations with evidence. And so then it will go to the prosecution team to decide, okay, is this a case that we can bring forward? Is there enough evidence here? Yes or no. And then let's say that does end up in a trial. The percentage for a successful outcome is between one to three percent. That's across a number of countries. Some countries are worse than that. Some countries are slightly better. But it really does sort of sit in that pocket. So is the decision to prosecute based on the fact that they believe that they can win or just they believe that they have enough to move forward to even establish a case, just much less win it? So it goes to, right, it's both of those things. You would have to establish that it occurred. And then do you have what amounts to a potential successful outcome? And and that's how it's determined. And then there are other complications. For example, if the perpetrator is in a different jurisdiction, then there's also funds that have to be taken into consideration. You know, is this a high profile enough case that we can allocate a certain amount of funds to extradite this person? So a lot of the cases, even though they've been reported, they don't progress any further. And that can be so disheartening for a victim, like just absolutely crushing. And that's why for me, when talking about testimony, what's really important is that I don't focus on an outcome that I can't control or that these victims can't control. What I focus on is the testimony and the sharing of the story, the sharing of the experiences, because it's really important to learn something from what's being said. As a society, we can learn some more. It took so much for them to get to where they are today and that many years have passed in this process of where they pursued this as a criminal matter. That's a brilliant approach, I think. I think Um, it's really healthy and just smart, you know? Yeah. And the experience of going through the police process is very intimidating for people. And And I would say even that alone is reason enough for most people to not want to do it because of how invasive that process is. And the victim is questioned before the perpetrator ever is. So the victim really, it's on them to really present their own case. And that can be incredibly distressing. So it's no wonder that some people just, they're like, I don't want to do that. And one thing you can do is you can still report and say like, look, it's not something that I want to pursue. And in fact, in Australia, what they brought in more recently is anonymous reporting you can do it through online. And this is really can be really great because let's say it's somebody who has contact with, let's say, if it's children or, you know, if that relates to what's being reported, 
and I would say that's really common in wanting to do anonymous reporting is that if that person's in a position of power, you feel really intimidated. Power dynamics play a major role. Right. Absolutely. But for police, if they can collate that information and go, okay, well, there's, there's vulnerable people here. This person has contact with a number of people, or maybe they get more than one report. So what I want to say is that there are different ways to do things. You don't have to go through the entire process. You can pick and choose along the way what you're comfortable with. And so if you just want to report, then that's fine. And if you don't want to pursue it any further than that, because I understand like the process is incredibly intimidating. But I also want to say now as well that we can also have advocacy that helps us along the way with our cases too. So there is a lot more of a support network now. And, you know, particularly in Australia, they have organizations that do that. So I think it will depend on your location and how well-equipped they are. Uh, There's so many complexities that go along with it. I love Rain for that reason in that you can call in for emotional support. You can call in for medical guidance, you know, legal guidance. They'll help you with... They'll meet you where you are, basically. And I just love that idea. And also the anonymity of it and the hotlines that you're talking about that are anonymous. It's really, really valuable. But And back to something that you said, I can't even imagine the complexity of compared to an adult that is sexually assaulted or raped reporting and everything that you have to go to to just attempt to get justice, to deal with your experience and then choose to do something about it and fight this incredibly challenging system we have but a child i wonder what the percentage is of that of the 15 percent that you're saying report i wonder how many of those are child sexual abuse child assault survivors and i know that for sure one thing that we do see is that people sometimes have to become adults before they become ready to talk about what happened to them. They have to, you know, come into a situation where they perhaps have some stability, that they have some safety mechanisms around them, that they have some protection. If we don't have that as a child, we don't have a support system. Sometimes it's going to take us some time before we can be in a position where we feel safe enough to talk about, about it. And so we do commonly see that. And yeah, there's, there's many reasons why that is the case. And the thing is, what happens then is it's a historical case. So you don't have a lot of evidence, you know, and also if you have an institution involved as well, that is preventing this evidence from coming out as well. There are some levels here of difficulty, extreme difficulty. And then the perpetrator may have been moved out to a different jurisdiction or they relocated themselves. There's so many different layers that just just adds to the complexity of the situation. Yeah, I mean, with Scientology, your support system is completely involved in silencing you. They're part of that system. They're part of that ethics, justice, don't report. They're protecting that larger, more important organization or, or cause, you know, over the child. So, yeah, I can see yeah, that would absolutely. take a long time to navigate around understand, find language, get the courage up. Yeah. I mean, I feel like in your example, you've related this story to me. Like the moment that you realized you could report it, you wanted to report it. 
I can't. I can do that. Yes. I mean, it's such an epiphany. Right. Absolutely. And I think that's especially when it's occurred to you while you're in an institution, because those are the, the laws that are imposed on you. And I hope that the government and governments around the world do more to understand these mechanisms and do more to protect individuals, to have some means or some measures as where it's ensured that individuals do have access to outside agencies that can assist and support in these cases. And what we can have is some early intervention. You know, we can really do so much good. So for me, that goes back to why advocacy is important, why what Dr. Ziv is doing is important, why learning more and providing more information about these things is important. And then what we begin to see is this real difference because society starts to move up in their ways of dealing with these sorts of things and early intervention is coming into play and prevention is coming into play and we have all these fantastic milestones and unfortunately we have these organizations that are still stuck back in what their laws are and that's where we see this real imbalance that we're starting to see now and I think there will be a tipping point at some stage where it is impressed upon these organizations that they also need to change their ways. Yeah. Because just because you're within a, a religion or a particular organization doesn't mean that you don't have human rights. And this is the imbalance that we have right now and that we've had historically. But what we see in these organizations is a real denial of people's human rights. And that's something that that's the change. Yeah, I mean, all of these pressure points that are put in place with these people in this trial really relate to that. The concealing of, the handling of, the suppressing of, the victim shaming, blaming, misdirection, selling you services, chapel. Yes. You know, we need more look back windows or eliminate statute of limitations entirely, but better still, intervention. So it doesn't happen. So you're not having to you know, defend these things after the fact. Yes, exactly. That's exactly right. And to close that, that part, Dr. Ziv also says that sexual assault is very difficult to talk about. People are going to ask you about your genitalia or what, 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 where. It's uncomfortable. It's one of the reasons people do not report. So it's not unusual for someone to give a piecemeal disclosure to give away a little bit of information, hoping that will suffice. That happens in all cases of sexual assault, regardless if they have previous experience of giving information. One of the things I want to talk about is, you know, on TV or in movies, we see that when a victim goes to police, this is generally from what I've seen, but victim goes to police and then very quickly after, you see the police interrogating the suspect. And suddenly, you know, the suspect eventually is confessing or there's been evidence and that kind of thing. And it just is not the process that actually mm -hmm. occurs in real time. There's like number of years that go by, five years, 10 years. Like, it's just an insane amount of time. I'm glad that we are clearing up that, that misconception. Yes. Exactly. And 
what I want to say is throughout that entire process, yes, there's a lot of variations on the types of statements that you're giving. For example, is that a statement that you sit down and do yourself? Is that a statement that you go into the police station and you give an initial report? Is that a statement that's taken one-on-one with a sexual assault specialist team? So there's so many variations in terms of the level of detail that's being asked of you, the level of detail that you're giving. And sometimes you feel like, okay, well, if I say this bit, then that's enough, right? That's enough to say, hey, that's the bad guy that did that to me. But that's not enough. And as you go on in this process, you find out that you now need to ask this person for a statement, contact that person for a statement. You might be asked to even do a recorded phone call, which is called a pretext call. And there's so many different ways of, that the evidence is gathered to support your case. And a lot of that burden is on you. And all of that can be reasons why people don't want to pursue these sorts of things. This case has yeah. been such a really good example of that. I, I haven't followed trials very closely. It's kind of not my thing, but the way that they have framed it being the responsibility of the victim to articulate every single detail accurately, despite how the police are actually leading the interview, the questions that are actually being asked, that they're supposed to be the expert in the language that they should use around it and what they need to restate and what they need to correct and what they need to clarify and that they should be reaching out and emailing and calling and being, you know, extremely assertive. It's just so disappointing to to believe that anyone could think that to me. I agree. And the other thing that comes into play is that a person will remember things in different ways, depending on the situation that they are in. So what I mean by that is that uh, we have something called like memory stress. My understanding of it is, it's like, for example, here, here was my process. That might be helpful if I tell what my process was. When I initially reported it, the first time that I reported to police, I walked into the police station, I went up to the front desk and I said that I need to report this. They said, okay, take a seat. I went and sat down. Then they had someone. Now, fortunately, for my state and in Australia, we have a specialist team that deals with sexual assault, rape, and child sexual abuse. So then I go into a one-on-one room where I go in with this particular police officer and she takes down my initial statement. So that is to say that I told her things and she wrote it down on a piece of paper. And it was very brief. And then from there, she said, okay, and now what you need to do is write a statement on your own. So go home in your own time and write a statement about what happened and then provide that to me. Now, what's helpful there is that if you're doing it in your own time and you're sitting and you're in a situation where you're not hyper stressed, like the content of what you're writing is stressful and you're going to feel that in your body. And it's going to be incredibly, you know, difficult, but at least you don't have those other factors coming into play and you can do that. You can take your time to do that. And in fact, you could do that over a period of months if you wanted to, or however long that took to do. So then you would provide that. 
And then from there, I had another one-on-one with the investigator who was then handling the case. And then that was rather extensive. And that was a full day of discussion. But I, I remember from that where, for example, I'm describing an incident that happened in the back of a van. And he asked me questions about that. And I said, oh, I'm, I'm not sure. And then he said, I don't want to be too specific here, but he suggested something. He said, oh, well, maybe could it have been blah? And I, and I said, oh, I guess, I guess it could have been blah. Sure. And then that went into the statement. So there is that as well, because you just think like, oh, well, to my best guess or to my best, you know, ability to remember. Sure. But you're not expecting that down the line, that's going to be compared with, okay, well, in the previous statement, you just said generally this, but this time it's more specifically that. And now you're being held to mm-hmm. that. Now you can't change what was just a mm-hmm. kind of a rough guess at the time, you know? So I want to just sort of show that there are different ways that statements are taken. And I don't actually, I haven't come across, I could be wrong, but I, I haven't come across statements that the Jane Doe's did in their own time that weren't related to Scientology. So a lot of these statements are in high pressure, high stress situations where they had the investigators come to their home and and also even just initial reports of going to the front desk and giving very in, like limited information as you would. Like, so... I mean, this is obviously the defense strategy, and I, I'm hoping that the jury can see through that. But yeah, there's there's a whole different, again, going back to these preconceived ideas where we see on a TV show or in the movies, this rapid succession of activity that occurs. Mm-hmm. It just does not occur that way at all. And there's lots of different circumstances that mm-hmm. have evidence is given and some of those circumstances are more stressful than others. So what I want to talk about that stress factor is when you're in a relaxed frame of mind, when you're, you're in a feeling of comfort, you don't have that high stress, your ability to remember is going to be much greater. Okay. Because the brain and the body is not having to worry about stress factors or safety factors in the immediate environment. So it can go, okay, we can, you know, pull some energy away from our present time alert systems and we can go back and we can have a look there, okay? But if I'm in a situation that's more stressful, I'm not going to have great access to that long-term memory recall because my brain is going to be more alert to what's happening in the current environment. That's really important to understand that. And so when you are giving testimony on the stand, imagine what you have to override in order to answer these questions, because you're not in a peaceful, quiet environment where you can just do this in your own time. And, you know, there's so it's it's memory stress is the tactic from the defense. And you will also see them go back and forth between questions. So they'll ask like Bill Combe, he'll ask a question here and then he'll ask a question there. He'll ask a question about graphic descriptions of rape from her testimony. And then he'll ask something that's a little bit, seems more, a little bit more benign. And he'll just go back and forth. And it's just, yeah. 
again, why people Absolutely. don't want to go through this. So. Like, yeah, yeah. But just in regards to date rape and, and drug rape. So I was 18 already, and this is before I joined staff. I was in college and I experienced a drug rape by four people I can name, but I, or four men, but I think there were five involved. And I know that I was drugged because I know, <laughs> you know, you know, but I was, as I was reading the testimony as well, I felt that I could relate to so much of that because I, I feel like there's a big misconception of drug or date rape drugs where you completely black out and you don't remember anything. But as I was reading the testimony, I was realizing how similar my experience was, where there are really foggy patches and I wasn't in control of my body, but I could remember certain things and just, just awful. So that happened. The rape happened. And the following weeks after that, I sunk into this really terrible depression that I couldn't get out of and dissociation and just I had basically a nervous breakdown and that all led up to my first suicide attempt and after that happened I was meant to go live with my auditor and I had to join staff as part of my handlings I had to go into intensives and receive security checks sex checks and but my first steps were to come out of lower conditions. So I was placed into the lowers. I had to make amends for, I truly don't even know what. <laughs> but so I got to my liability, right? In, li in liability, you have to suffer on up through the conditions. So you have to deliver an effective blow to the enemy of the group. And I think it was a sign that the enemy the enemy that I was belonging to at the time were just my friends in college. So the effective blow was to go back to campus, my college campus, to each one of my rapists and give them the way to happiness pamphlets with the dog ear on do not be promiscuous. And that was my effective blow. So I had to go back after my suicide attempt and go back to each one of these guys, not only is that dangerous and humiliating and triggering and all of the things, but also, do you remember how hilarious Scientology was to just general public and how silly it was and ridiculous? And it's like, if you were a Scientologist, that's so stupid, you know? It just, oh, Tom Cruise is jumping on a sofa and that's what general people had the idea of Scientology. It was just, you're weird and you believe in aliens. So to go back to these guys in college and give them this stupid pamphlet, pamphlet from Scientology and like try to bring them in. Oh, Is that wild? Victoria, thank you for sharing that story and also like, is so isn't that wild? awful. Yeah. So awful. I think what you were saying about that misconception about date rape drugs. My my experience with date rape drugs did not happen as it was affiliated with the church. But 
my experience with it is very much the same. You are, I remember patches and I remember not being in control of my body. And it just is like a big, bumpy, fuzzy experience where I like really couldn't control where I was. But I definitely didn't just like pass out. I definitely didn't just black everything out. I definitely operated machinery <laughs> because I thought I had just had a drink. And, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's not all black and white like that. But thank you for sharing that. And I, I do remember how absolutely ridiculous it was, how embarrassing it was to be volunteering or to be out and about in public or to be someone who really just wanted the best for another stranger or another person on the street. I didn't have to offer this cheesy pamphlet and just get these terrible interactions with people. It's just, and having to do that after everything you went through was just it, impossible. I think suicide, yeah, they consider a blow, the ultimate blow. That, mm -hmm. That's the other thing. When I went to go live with my auditor and I was doing those lowers, I had to sign an affidavit saying, if I committed suicide, it was not because of Scientology. It was just because of me. And it had, it was very clear. <laughs> like, this has nothing to do with the church. And my auditor was concerned for even taking me into her house because she didn't want that bad PR on her. If, just in case I succeeded. It, yes. Oh, well, yeah. And she was also an OT8 risk. at the time and I was in her home. So that was a whole different security risk, you know? Yeah. yeah. Thank you for sharing that. It's yeah. Thanks for listening. I'm so sorry. I can't imagine how, how could you make things worse? Mm -hmm. How could you yeah. not, how could you the, do the opposite of helping someone? Like mm -hmm. if you tried to strategize how to really harm someone that's suffering that's a victim mm -hmm. that experienced trauma that mm -hmm. is critical in an acute phase mm -hmm. have you <laughs> yeah yeah let's apply Scientology yeah. I mean Amanda Victoria thank you so much for sharing and I wanted to just ask you guys when did the drug rape happen to you mine was in 2010 mine would have been 2015 or 14. Mine was in 2003. Mine was 2000 and 2003. We didn't know going into getting together and doing recordings for this podcast that each of us had experienced drug rape. And I just wanted to point to the statistics. Like, I don't know. I'm not aware of what the statistics are, but I feel like it's far more common than what people think and I think that part of that is to do with not understanding what happened and sometimes it can take us a long time to figure out like so it is really difficult to you know navigate through what happened to us and sometimes it's really really helpful to hear others stories and you go oh, oh okay like it can help understand, it can help in the understanding um, and cut through these misconceptions and these preconceived ideas that we have in society. And even just understanding how common it is, because I didn't realize how common it was until, you know, speaking to you guys 
to know that it happened to each one of us and over a period of time. So spread across those years and even more recently. So it tells me that we haven't done enough to prevent these things from happening and that they are still going on. And certainly it was prevalent at the time that Danny Masterson committed these rapes. And, and, so for me, and it they correlates. report to authorities because they weren't allowed to, because they were gagged and under threat of all of these Scientology punishments. Mine was not Scientology related. It was years later. I didn't report because I didn't figure it out in time. And I was ashamed. Mine ultimately wound up being the person who had placed the drugs in a, you know, in a way that I was able to consume them was ultimately unsuccessful. <laughs> I was I was at a location with a date who was performing. And while he was on stage, I was left alone. And I left my drink on the edge of the stage to dance while he was performing. And when he got off the stage an hour later, I was unable to to really move around, but had been consistently followed by one other individual at this club who didn't know I was there with someone else. But by the time I got around to being with my actual date, I was so out of it that he was shocked. It's, it's one of the most embarrassing nights of my life. I. I was on this date with someone that I'd been planning for a while and wound up driving and making him think that I was completely intoxicated and that I had taken shots while I was, you know, and I actually didn't figure it out until someone who had been working at the venue mentioned that that venue had been closed down again because there had been so many, so many of these druggings happening. So it's a totally separate experience, but the fact that I, that it happened to me and then I know that it happened to me and how lucky I am that the one person who was targeting me didn't ultimately wind up getting away with what they had been aiming to get away with is wild. It's terrible. I'm so sorry. Amanda, thank you so much for sharing. In regards to date rape drugs, the very next thing that Dr. Ziv talks about is that she says, it impairs your motor coordination and your memory and your ability to make judgments. It can make people feel very confused about what happened. Date rape drugs go from alcohol, which is the common, to GHB, most powerful, and it impairs the memory. She explains that during a traumatic experience, the memory is focused on the key facts and other peripheral things become lost. Okay, and then on the redirect, Mr. Mueller asks her, are there certain date rape drugs that put you on the same continuum as the way alcohol works? And she said, whole classes of drugs, benzodiazepines, they're used in medical practice to put you to sleep or to relax you. So what I think he's trying to ask there is, are you just flat out unconscious, laying on the ground, immobile, like you'd have to be dragged around? Or could you be in continuum, as in still operating, still able to walk, move around? And she does say, yes, a whole class of drugs, benzodiazepines. So we understand that, yes, there's an entire class of drugs that does have this effect. Yeah, I mean, with me, it was progressive. So it was suddenly I couldn't see very well. And then I fell down and had to keep getting help to stand back up. And then, you know, I definitely needed help walking. And then by the end, I needed to be carried. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think it goes to what type of medication was used. So there is such a, a varying degree of symptoms and the effect that the drug has. And that's what we need to understand more about. So I think that's what, why that's important. Common drugs that are used in date rapes. And we're going to learn a lot more about that topic. But in regards to benzodiazepines, I think this is something that is far less understood. And I know that in my own experience with an instant of date rape drugging, I experienced full amnesia, which would have covered a period of at least at least a couple of hours before I first came to. And then from there, I was in and out of consciousness. And then I woke up in the morning. But when I was in and out of consciousness, I was heavily sedated, feeling like almost like I was in a, a cloud, feeling very strangely like, like just very, very, very relaxed, even though I was aware that I was experiencing rape. And that was something that was very confusing um, to me. Like, why didn't I panic? Why didn't I react physically? Well, because I was heavily sedated with a drug that was likely used to, you know, relax you or put you to sleep before you right, go under operation. It's very to lose control of your, your bodily function. You know, you, you, don't, you have no control of your body. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing that was confusing to me was because I woke, when I woke up in the morning, I grabbed my clothes and I ran out the door. And when I ran out the door was when I realized I was in an apartment building and I was several stories up, which I didn't know what story, what floor I was on yet. But I ran out and it was a hallway and it was, you know, obviously lined with other doors to other rooms. And I understood I was in some kind of apartment building and I had no idea how I'd gotten there. So I knew like, okay, I need to go and get an elevator. I found the elevator, you know, hit the down button, hit the ground button. I thought... And I should have, of course, like in hindsight, like I should have noted what room number it was, what floor it was, but I just wanted to get the hell out of there. So, you know, I, pr I pressed the ground button that took me several floors down to the ground. And then when I got out of there, I walked until I spotted a taxi and then I hailed a taxi and I gave them the address of where I needed to go to. So the thing when I thought about it later, I was like, well, how did they get me from where I was? to that apartment like they would have I would have had to been put in a vehicle I would have had to been taken up you know in the elevator or whatever up to the room and I had no memory it was just completely blank and it wasn't until I came across this particular drug which is a benzodiazepine and that is called find it here my dazzle um, wait my dazzle lap I don't even know if that's how you say it. Midazolam. M-I-D-A-Z-O-L-A-M. It's also sold under the brand name Versed, among others. It's a benzodiazepine medication used for anesthesia and procedural sedation and to treat, se and to treat severe agitation. It works by inducing sleepiness, decreasing anxiety, and causing a loss of ability oh. to create new memories. And that describes exactly what I experienced. The other thing that I had a lot of confusion on was that I understood that it took, you know, 20 to 30 minutes for a drug to be activated in a person's system. And I couldn't understand why from the moment of that first sip, I remember he handed me a drink, I put it to my lips, and I don't remember anything from there to when I first regained 
I'll say consciousness in the this apartment room. So I thought like, well, what's going on there? Why, you know, shouldn't I have some time that I would have processed it? But when I was looking into, I did a Google about Sydney, rape occurring in Sydney. I wanted to see if there was any stories similar to mine that occurred in a similar area. And I put in there because I knew that it happened in Sydney and I knew that it was the year 2003. So I specifically put that in there. And straight away, what came up as the first item in from as a result of the search was an article that was in the Sydney Morning Herald. And it describes basically pretty much what happened to me. I was so stunned. But it talks about a colorless, tasteless, and odorless date rape drug that erases the memory from just before wow. it is administered. Backwards. Yeah. So it's announcing that this drug has mm. hit the Sydney social scene. It says that police and community groups are warning partygoers to watch their drinks closely after evidence that Midas, mm. and I'm going to say it wrong, Midazolam, a fast-acting hospital anti-anxiety agent with a trade name of Hypnovel, so that's another name that's used as well, is being used increasingly to spike drinks. The revelation means that a night out is now much more dangerous for Sydney partygoers. Director of Emergency Medicine at St. Vincent's Hospital, Associate Professor Gordian Fould, said he had seen several cases of the drug being used in recent months. It is a relatively newish drug, usually used in anesthetic and procedure. It is very fast-acting and very rapidly absorbed through mucous membranes. It blocks out your memory from even before you got it. So you go fuzzy and you don't remember anything. You could Seriously, actually no forget your perpetrator, like entirely, if they got it to you quickly enough. That's true. That's very true, Christy. And that's, that is so dangerous. I mean, even beyond yeah. it being a rape. But, I mean, the, the severity of the danger that a person could be in um, as a result of someone administering, you know, that drug to them without them knowing. So it says... Although they generally remain awake, police fear that many victims may fail to come forward because of this amnesiac effect. So what I understand from that is like, although they they remain like functioning, as in you could walk and talk, you have complete amnesia. And that's where the confusion comes in for victims trying to understand what happened to them. It just is like a big, bumpy, fuzzy experience. It's just like weird liquid gaslight so, yeah. amnesia where you can't, you don't remember someone doing something bad to you in the beginning. You don't remember making a decision. You don't remember how you got there. You don't remember any of it. It's hard to blame someone else for something that you can't remember. It, it, it's really confusing. Absolutely. And you know, I really feel like what he's asking Dr. Ziv there is, can a person be mobile mm -hmm. and still be affected by these types of drugs? And mm -hmm. clearly the answer is yes. And this is why, you know, people do have these preconceived ideas. And Jane Doe 3 on Cross is asked, like, about this, you know, she has this drink at the restaurant and, you know, but then how did she get home and that kind of thing. And I'm sure if jurors don't understand that there can be a drug that's given that where you can still be up and about, essentially. You could be put into a car. You could be taken home. But you're not going to remember it. And that's what Jane Doe 3 talks about, this 
piece of amnesia that she had where she doesn't remember anything. And yet she got home from the restaurant. And so if you don't understand that there are different types of drugs with different types of effects, the defense could be effective there saying, oh, well, that's it. Good Pretty point. Big and he did. He there. tried to say, did he carry you out from the restaurant? You're so much taller than he is. You know, he's very small in stature. Wouldn't someone in the restaurant have noticed him carrying a six foot woman? Did he carry you up the steps? Is that even possible? It's a really good point that there's different body responses to it. It's And that one sounds like you're just on autopilot kind of and someone's steering you, you know. Very true. One of the things that I have a lot of confusion about as well was that when I woke up in the morning, that morning when I you know, made that escape, when I dashed from that room and I was thinking about it, I'm like, I don't have, I didn't have any major bruising and I couldn't understand. I thought, well, if I was taken from the bar to this apartment, you know, wouldn't I have had to be dragged? Like, wouldn't I be like scraped up and bruised up and especially maybe around the arms, under the armpits, like from being pulled and stuff. And I didn't have that kind of injury. So that was another point of confusion for me again. And again, it speaks to those preconceived ideas and to understand that, you know, there are different ways that Mm -hmm. these things can have an effect. And absolutely, like you said, that autopilot where you can just Mm -hmm. be directed, you're sedated. So imagine how if anyone's ever had a serious operation, a dental operation, or even I know that when you get your eyes lasered, that like if you get laser eye surgery, I know that they do give you a drug for that. Usually if you have a lot of anxiety about it and that can just sedate you. I did. I was supposed to be completely sedated. I was completely out. But at a certain point, I heard them say, OK, we're going to sit her up now. And I, in my mind, thought, OK, I need to sit up now. And so I did. I just fully sat up and they were like, whoa, 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 we're not talking to you. Lay back down. And the doctor later told me, oh, you weren't under very, you know, as deeply as we thought you were. And you no, know, sure enough. So I was able to function, even though I was supposed to be completely sedated under anesthesia, full anesthesia. Wow. Yeah. And the impact of the exams. It completely obeyed. Sit up. Absolutely. I think that very much speaks to it. So if you can start to understand and relate that back to your own experience of taking some sort of anesthetic, the amnesia effect of it, then you can start to understand, okay, you know, that, that that's possible. I was engaged and in this really abusive relationship. The last thing I would have done is cheat on this guy that, you know, regularly used force on me, on others. Like it just, none of it adds up with Jane Doe 3. She knew that this was the thing she didn't want. She knew this was a thing that he knew that she wouldn't do, you know? And so, I mean, you just know in your bones that I didn't choose this thing. I didn't want this thing. This is not what I would have done. But it's it's still just such a violation. So true, Christy. I do remember having that thought process as well. Like, as you mentioned, I was there to meet somebody else that I had just was newly dating or, you know, forming a romantic relationship with. And it was someone who I really liked, too. And he was a really nice guy, really sweet guy. And I just really beat myself up about it afterwards. But one of the things I remember 
my immediate thoughts when I first came to you in the morning was like, how did that happen? Because there's no way I would have had sex with this person. It was never something that I was aware of having any kind of thought or any kind of intention towards. And that I just thought this person was being really friendly. And like, I just thought, well, maybe, maybe I just ended up doing that because I drank too much. Those are my first immediate thoughts. But, you know, and I, I really, and so, and I really closed the door on that experience was like, I just summed it up. By the way, I was 18 years old when this happened. And I was just fresh out of the Sea Org and having grown up my entire life in the Cadet Org. And by the way, as well, I knew nothing about date rape drugs. So the only thing I could reference it to was that I'd been drinking and, oh, this just must be me. You know, this is my out Mm -hmm. ethics. This is my fault, you know. And but it, it, it became such a loss to me because... You know, yeah, it, it's, there's so much more to mm-hmm. this story. I'd have to tell the whole story. I might do that at a later time, but it, it does, I think, give enough to understand that we can be aware of what happened, but then still also mm-hmm. override it with these other thoughts too. And just go, oh, this is something I don't understand. So I'm just going to shove it to the back. And for years, you know, we could continue on in our lives. And then not until we have maybe some new information or we learn something for ourselves or for me at the time, when I first decided to report mm-hmm. this, I was undergoing counseling and it just happened to be that at this particular time it had come up again in my life. And I was, I, I finally was like looking at it and, you know, thinking about it and examining it. But for so many years, I had just shoved that down well, into the back of my mind I, I, and that it was I'm my fault. I'm glad that you reported it when you did, when you felt you could, because, you know, obviously... We make decisions for a reason. We act or don't act, you know, because of all sort of external influences. But I'm so glad that you did. I did not. I wish I did. I mean, obviously, with the low percentage of reporting, and I really do agree with you. The fa- just the fact that randomly we're having this conversation and all four of us have suffered from, you know, drug rape, that's remarkable to me. It's not something that I ever really think about or talk about. And and if we don't, it'll just continue. I think that's so important what you just said there, because it's something that we talk so little about. And the other thing with regard to my case is that it was two people who raped me. But it's interesting how I had some thoughts about the first one, right? Because I thought, oh, maybe. So it was two people over a period of time in that night. And it was, you know, I have memory of the first one in the rape and then the second person coming in in the rape. And I was able to kind of form some ideas about the first person because I thought, oh, well, maybe I, you know, maybe I did that willingly, even though I couldn't conceive of why I could have possibly done that willingly. It was just a jumble of like, you know, thoughts upon thoughts and trying Mm -hmm. to understand and form a narrative of what happened. But with regard to the second person, see, the second person was the father of the first person who did it. So I woke up to the first person. I passed out again, woke up to the second person, which was his father. That, I didn't process that at all. I literally just took that and just like shoved that 
far down as far as possible because I didn't have any type of narrative that I could create that made that okay. So I had to forget about that. Yeah, yeah. That, that's a difficult thing to process. Yeah. Thank you I'm for excited. sharing. I just so appreciate, you know, Christy, Amanda, and Victoria, you know, sharing, you know, pieces of your stories and sharing that with any listeners. And I hope that even just by one piece of information or, you know, one piece of a story that maybe we could help one person or a few people. And that is pretty incredible and is very meaningful. It's so valuable that we connect with each other. And I know it empowers others to do the same. It is one thing that Scientology has tried so hard to prevent for so long. Real connection, openness, and honesty between us. So it's a really powerful thing to be able to do now. Plus, it just feels really wonderful to be able to talk to each of you about these things. Thank you all for sharing your stories and for being vulnerable and honest, sharing your truth and experiences. This has been lots of great information, but a lot of details that could be really hard to digest, especially if you are a survivor of abuse as well. So please remember to check in with yourselves. For more information, support, and advice regarding sexual assault, the largest national helpline in the U.S. is RAIN. That's R-A-I-N-N. Their website is www.rainn.org. You can speak with the trained staff member via the online chat or call their free helpline, 800-656-HOPE. That's 800-656-4673. We're just so happy and appreciative of anyone that is listening because this is really meant to be a part of community. And we're here all together, so we're very appreciative as you're a part of our village. So thank you so much. 